morning. Good morning again to you at home. Let us uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer again, shall we? Father, I feel my weakness this morning. Others do as well. What joy there is in knowing that we can come to you. We can be heard. We can be strengthened to know who we live for, who we have to find peace in. Order us now in accordance with your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Peace. We, we all want peace, don't we? That's what I want. That's what you want. We want peace among the nations. We want uh, peace in our own nation. We want peace in our families. We want peace uh, in our marriages. We want peace in our homes. We want peace, don't we, in our own souls. Peace to, is to be at rest with oneself to have things are as they're supposed to be. But peace is. And we all want it. This is why we have peaceful protests, right? We see something disturbed and we want it to be brought back to peace, which is why we say that phrase, no justice, what? No peace. Because that's what we want. This is why the world's most coveted award is the Nobel Peace Prize. This is why we have the Peace Corps. We want peace. 2020 has disturbed that peace. It's not as though it existed before 2020 because it didn't. But 2020 has disturbed this all the more, the exposure of more racial injustices to, of course, the pandemic that we're experiencing this morning, uh, to economic worries, to what COVID isolation has done to us, uh, to the division this election has brought about. And sadly, this disturbance has even visited the church, hasn't it? And that's just this year. We want peace. And peace seems elusive to us, doesn't it? The rancor is at an all-time high. Everywhere we turn, there is reason to wonder if peace, true and lasting peace, will ever come. And so amidst these days, friends, we don't need platitudes. We don't need platitudes. We don't need some new deal. We are in anguish. The problem is too deep and it's gone on for too long. We need a deep and abiding peace. And so here's the question for us then. Where are you going to look to find peace? And maybe even a more important question. Do we even know the things that make for peace? Do we even know the things that make for peace? Well, today we're going to find our answer to that last question in particular. And I assure you, the answer that we are given is not the one that we're often told to believe in least out in the world. And so, as you heard Andy read, we turn to Luke chapter 19. The cross of Christ is closer in view. Today we will investigate the last time that Jesus will come to that capital city of Jerusalem. He's been coming to that city since he was a boy. And this time, though, is different, isn't it? For months now, Luke has been telling us, way back into chapter 9, It seems like every passage is telling us that Jesus has his face set on Jerusalem. And today he finally makes it into the city. Jesus knows what awaits him upon his arrival into that city. He's told his disciples, and Luke by extension has told us, that he's going to be handed over, he's going to be crucified, and he will be resurrected. 
And as the, as he, Jesus, ascends the Mount of Olives, he looks down into the city of Jerusalem, and he knows as he looks in there, this is the beginning of the end. This explains those tears that we will consider in a moment as he draws near to the city. Jesus was born for this hour, and it's all beginning to come together in this final week. And so what happens upon the descent of the Mount of Olives and the ascent into the city of Jerusalem, friends, will undeniably change the world. No matter what you believe about Jesus, you cannot deny the events of this final week has literally changed the entire world. It is Sunday here in the events of Luke 19. It is Sunday. A week from this day will be His resurrection. It's the first day of the last week of His life. All the authors of the Gospels slow down in this final week. Uh, When we read the book of John, for instance, more than half of his book is taken up by these events. In the book of Luke, we see that six of his 24 chapters will document this final week. The final week of the life of Christ is going to take us as a church from now till Christmas. Indicating, isn't it, the magnitude, the centrality of these events to the ministry of Christ. And so may we pay close attention to them as we learn the things that make for peace. So looking there at the passage, after speaking that parable of the ten minas that we considered last week, that kind of ominous note of destruction at the end, we see in verse 28 that Jesus goes on to Jerusalem. He comes to two nearby suburbs of Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethpage, These communities are situated on the uh, Mount of Olivet, on or near the Mount of Olivet. Uh, These are elevated communities on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. And what comes next, friends, is a major indicator of Jesus' consciousness of his own identity as Lord and Savior. What comes next reveals Jesus knows who he is and what he's doing. He he tells his disciples, we see, to go ahead to this village in front of them, and there's going to be this colt that's never been ridden. Go ahead, get that colt, bring it here. Those disciples, they go off and they find it just as the Lord said. And they tell the person, they ask, in essence, sort of a strange event, right? You can imagine your colt being taken away. And, uh, and what do they tell them? But what Jesus told them, they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And off it goes. They bring the colt to Jesus. This little event right here, this little snapshot, friends, is a snapshot of how Jesus would often know things in advance of time. Ministry as prophet. And we find that upon the, the donkey coming to Jesus, they throw coats in the back of the donkey. And then they lift up Jesus and set him on top. And as he rides, uh, they lay out coats on the ground in front of him. We know from other accounts that they also throw palm branches down in front of him. This is adding to the intended effect of royalty. That's what's intended to be seen here. The effect of royalty. Like we would roll out a red carpet in advance of a king, so they roll out coats and branches in front of the king of kings. And so we can imagine in our imagination, we can begin to imagine in our imagination, Jesus riding on the back of a donkey, coming into Jerusalem, coats being thrown down before him as he comes to the crest of the Mount of Olives, And as he rides, we get some more important information. We get some more information about the importance of these events that help us understand what is happening here. And that is seen in what the disciples, the multitude of the disciples shout out. You see it there. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We can imagine them saying this over and over again. You're familiar with that word, Hosanna. They're singing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Friends, this is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. A psalm that Luke is actually going to quote yet again in just a few verses down in chapter 20, verse 17, where there in verse 17, that same psalm is referenced as Jesus being the rejected cornerstone. What is all of this that's happening? These kind of, maybe to us, strange events. What Luke means to show us here is that Jesus, friends, is the blessed king who comes in the name, in the power, in the character, in the person of the Lord himself so that this king might bring about a true and lasting peace. That's what he means to show us. The heavenly king is entering in to bring about a true and lasting and even worldwide peace. And all of it is happening, friends, just as it was prophesied some 500 years before these events. You say, how so? How is it happening just as it was 500 years before? What are you talking about, Nathan? Well, for those of you that have, that have been at Restoration Church for a little more than a year, these events should be familiar to you. I shared with, uh, I think it was Catherine this week, that we were, remember in the book of Zechariah, that seems like a decade ago. But turn to the book of Zechariah, and there you see the prophecy of these events in Luke 19. You're going to want to see this. So I would encourage you to go there. Look at the table of contents. My guess is you probably don't visit Zechariah that much. It's okay. You're going to want to see this. Look in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And here we see what all of these events mean. Jesus riding on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem. This prophecy is written again 500 years in advance of Jesus' coming. And in this passage, we will see very clearly that the Old Testament was pointing to the ministry of Christ. Time and again, it is anticipating this greater king that will bring in a greater kingdom, what we call the kingdom of God, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Jesus has been talking about this kingdom. Now we see Jesus consciously reveal that he is the king of the kingdom by his enacting these promises in Zechariah 9. By him calling to go get that donkey, he knows I am the answer to these promises. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10 say this. Looking forward to his ministry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. And then, friend, notice the intended contrast in the next verse, followed by another note on his rule of this king that's coming. It's the contrast to verse 9. 10 is a contrast to 9. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace, peace, peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so in this passage, we have a king that is coming to Jerusalem that has two critical things, according to Zechariah, two critical things. When he comes on this donkey, he has righteousness and salvation. See that in verse 9 of Zechariah 9. You need to know that there can be no uh, lasting salvation without righteousness and no righteousness without salvation. Jesus comes with both of them. 
And how does this king of Zechariah 9, how does he come? How does he come? We see what he brings. How does he come? Well, he comes humble, Zechariah 9, 9 says. He's not proud. He's humble. How is he humble? Well, he's mounted on a donkey. Now, this is significant, friends, for a couple reasons. Not only because it fulfills prophecy, but also because it reminds us of another significant event in redemptive history. Every one of these Jewish disciples would have known the last king to have ridden on a donkey. They would have recalled how King David appointed his son Solomon to ride his donkey as a sign of his kingship passing to his son, as a sign of his rule and authority. You can read about that this afternoon in 1 Kings 1. This incident of King David's donkey and Solomon riding in on it So here we would have known, the disciples would have known that this is a fulfillment of that prophecy, that pointer. And so what we find when we look back into Luke 19 here is Jesus, the true and greater son of King David, the true and greater, more wiser Solomon, riding the back of a donkey into the capital city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by the way, means city of peace. City of peace. And so we have the king of peace coming to bring peace as he rides into the city of peace as it was prophesied hundreds of years before by the God of peace. All of God's promises are beginning to be realized. But there's one more thing to notice about the prophecy of Zechariah. Notice that the donkey is contrasted with a war horse from Jerusalem. Verse 10. So it's to our great interest that the war horse of Jerusalem is cut off, is beaten, is destroyed. How is he destroyed? How is he cut off? With a king on a donkey. This donkey riding king is stronger than a war horse. And he not only brings peace to the region, we learn in verse 10, he speaks peace and rules from sea to sea. His rule for we will be from the river to the ends of the earth. And friends, what we're learning in Luke chapter 19 is the answer to all this. Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Jesus brings peace to heaven as they're singing and eventually to the entire earth. Isn't that what we remember learning about last year when the angels spoke at his birth? Right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Jesus brings about this peace and he comes in and he breaks in to bring it not on a war horse, but on a common, unintimidating beast of the field. He comes to conquer and conquer. Friends, this is exactly what Paul would write about just soon after these events in Luke 19. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, and I might add a kind of silly, mythological, unprogressive mindset of 21st century enlightened American person. I kind of made that last part up just to be clear. God right. Paul goes on to write, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world, he says, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, like donkeys, not war horses, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God shows his strength through weakness. It's how strong he is. And so as we consider these events, to my unbelieving friends, what king or queen are you trusting in to bring about true and lasting peace? You should know, friend, that no might of man, no war horse has ever in the history of the world brought about a true and deep and abiding, lasting peace to any country, much less the world. No amount of money, no amount of education can ever bring in the kind of peace that this world needs, that you and I need problem of the world is deeper than all of that. And to be clear, that doesn't mean that governmental reform is unimportant. It is. It just means that it will never be enough. We need to look beyond the world for hope. And so to my crew, Christian brothers and sisters, we need to remember this donkey riding king that conquers as well, don't we? We need to remember that we do not fight for peace with the weapons of the world not with slander and intimidation, not with war horses. We fight with foals. We take swords and beat them into plowshares. We take spears and beat them into pruning hooks. That's how we win because that's how Jesus won. We are the ones, right, that have entered into the peace that eludes so many. We believe, don't we, that Jesus has all authority that he does rule from sea to sea. We believe, don't we, that we are citizens of a heavenly country. And we believe that until we get there, we will have tribulation here. And so, yes, we will suffer. But, yes, brothers and sisters, we must suffer with contentment because we know who's in control and where it all is going. We embrace that weakness so as to expose the might of Christ. How is it we do that, though, practically? How is it we enter into this sort of mindset of a donkey-riding king that overcomes the world? How do we get that sort of worldview instead of trying to conquer with war horses? How do we enter into that as God's people? How is it we fight on foals, not on war horses? How is it we are oriented towards our heavenly home and not try and fight like the world, but instead uh, from we fight for peace from peace? How do we do that? Well, the answer, friends, is by joining in the worship of those disciples in the rocks. That's how. Take a look at that passage again, Luke 19. We see that a whole multitude of Jesus' disciples were literally rolling out the carpet for him. And they are worshiping him as the king that brought peace, bringing in peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're worshiping him as the king of peace, as he comes in. And when the Pharisees thought that the disciples went too far, Jesus said they do not go far enough. And if they do not speak up, the rocks will cry out. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you were made for worship. You can't not worship. That is unable. Just try for 10 minutes this afternoon. You can't do it. And the focal point of our worship must be on Christ, the king of peace. 
This is why at Restoration Church, this is why our mission statement reads as it does. We make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ, the kingship of Christ. The more that we look on him, the more peace that we find in the world. And of course, the opposite is also true. The less we worship him, the less peace we will have because we will then be oriented by lesser kings and our souls will be disturbed, which explains, by the way, why so many confessing Christians have so little peace. Brothers and sisters, be reminded of the great truth of of Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Listen to this. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By a donkey riding king. Right? By the blood of Christ. By the sacrifice of Christ. And then listen to what he says next. For he, Jesus, for he himself is, is is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility friends peace is not just a thing that we need peace is a person and he's ours and we are his the person of peace the prince of peace he himself is our peace and he bought that peace by his own blood isaiah says that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts you. Beloved, if you lack peace, it's because you're lacking worship of Christ. Stay your mind upon him and you will rise above the chaos of our day. The rocks know this. The angels know this. We know this. May we enter into it more often. And when we do, we will glide upon the grains of the universe as we were reminded of who our king is, who is in control, and soon enough we will get to meet him. We are reminded of those truths and that will quiet our souls. So with this in view, we can begin to understand the tears of Christ and what comes next. We imagine with the palm and coat carpet beneath him, the praises of his disciples ringing in his ears behind him, that Jesus descends the Mount of Olivet on the donkey and he comes near, closer in to the city of Jerusalem. And apparently, as Jesus comes closer to the city, he's overwhelmed. Tears flow from the eyes of the King of Peace. That word wept there in verse 41, it might indicate that this was not just a couple of drops. This was a flow of tears. Jesus seems overcome by this sight. And if we were there, and even now, we might ask, why? Why is he so overcome? What's behind these tears? What is it about this sight of Jerusalem? Well, it's a couple things, friends. First off, remember Jesus knows what awaits him inside of that city. He knows it. He's talked about it plenty of times. He's also aware of the hundreds of years of God's grace to the people of that city. It was named the city of peace because it was given the way of peace time and time and time again, but they wouldn't have it. The people in that city, they wouldn't have it. A common analogy of Israel in the Old Testament was that of a harlot or prostitute. 
So we can think of how the Lord told Hosea to marry the prostitute Gomer as an illustration of God's love for Israel. And even though she was unfaithful time and again, God remained faithful to her. And here, as Jesus sits upon King David's donkey, the prophecy of Zechariah fulfilled the cross before him. The worship of the disciples ringing in his ears behind him. He looks upon the city like a lovesick husband would look upon his cheating wife. And he weeps for her because he loved her. And she didn't love him back. And amidst those tears, he speaks to her. Verse 42, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Now destruction awaits you. You're going to be surrounded. No stone will be left upon another because you did not know your time of visitation. The things that make for peace are bound up in those praises heard in the ears of Christ as he weeps. And Jesus knew that Jerusalem would never submit to those praises, never submit to that true and lasting worship of him. Jerusalem was willing to use him, but not worship him. They were willing to go through the motions of worship, but not submit to a life of worship. And now they are left to pay the consequences. The crucifixion that he knew was in front of him was the climax to a long line of adulterous affairs. They loved the gifts of God, but they never seemed to actually love God for himself. And so like Jesus' parable, when the son came to the city to collect what was his, they would kill him. They wanted peace like we all do, but they never seemed to understand the things that make for peace. Which is to say, they never seemed to understand that to know the peace of God, one had to submit to the God of peace. Had to submit to his king, and by extension, his will, his designs, which are for their good. Peace is found in submitting to the God of peace. Worshipping him, enjoying him, following him. And therefore, as they have so many times before, Jerusalem then, as a result of their just running away from him, Jerusalem has provoked the anger of the Lord. This destruction that Jesus talks about here, uh, this siege that he's mentioning, this leveling of the city, this will happen in just under 40 years later when Rome will come and sack the city of Jerusalem. But let's pause for a moment and consider the heart of Christ behind those tears. We often, understandably and even correctly, think about the Lord's anger against our sin. But beloved, have you ever considered the Lord's tears over your sin? Have you ever considered that you don't just break His law, but you break His heart? He loves you. He's for you. He's done all things for us. And when I say that, listen, don't lose sight of this. Don't lose sight of this. I don't say that to guilt you. No, no. The point is to see the heart of Christ. Not to guilt you, to see the heart of Christ. To gaze upon the heart of Jesus. Our view of the Lord is so often skewed. We see His commands as these cold, scientific sort of things instead of seeing the person, the heart of Jesus. What He's like. 
The tears here inform that. Dane Ortland says of Jesus that Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Beloved, the commands of Christ were never meant to burden us. They were meant to be tutors that lead us into the way of peace. Back to him. Back to that prince of peace. His ways are the way to and for peace. And as we will see in a moment, it's true, he does get angry. But before he is angry, he is saddened by our determination to go our own way, to not submit, to find other kings to follow. His tears for the unwillingness of Jerusalem, even Jerusalem, are not any different to us that have drunk from the fountain of God's grace since we were children. Beloved, come to see that the commands of Christ are the pathways to peace. And likewise, traveling other roads that lead away from him, those are the things that bring tears that eventually lead to anger. Beloved, see the heart of Christ in the tears of Christ. Be led towards Him, not away from Him. Worship Him, follow Him, and be led inside the things that make for peace. As we look at His sacrifice that brought us in. Well, we've seen the triumphal entry of Christ. We've seen the sadness in His tears. Let's now take a look at the anger of Christ in the temple. Now, it's important to follow the kind of flow of this passage. We moved from the worship of the blessed King of Peace who comes in the name of the Lord. Then we move from that sort of joyful moment to the tears of the King of Peace over the city of peace that wouldn't have him. And now the tears move to anger because he not only reflects on the wife he loves that has been cheating on him, he catches her in the act. And it turns to rage. Jesus comes down the Mount of Olivet. He dismounts from the king's donkey. He comes in peace and he walks into the temple. And what does he see but people inside the temple buying and selling sacrificial materials for profit. Instead of worshiping God, they are using God to profit for themselves. So the worship of God in the place of God is little more now than a shopping mall. And Jesus starts to drive people out of the temple. We can imagine this scene. Try to imagine this scene. Uh, Jesus, so often calm and collected, is enraged because he's watching their idolatry happen in a place that is supposed to be, of all places, full of true worship. And so tables are flipped. Goats are running all over the place. Money's on the ground. People trying to scrape it up. And Jesus then moves in quotes two very revealing scriptures that describe what is going on with this temple cleansing moment. He quotes two passages that reveal this. Look at verse 46. Note that he says, it is written. Once again, reminding of Jesus' submission to the word of God. The first quote passage that he quotes amidst this temple cleansing is Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be a house of prayer. Now the context of that verse in Isaiah 56 is when the Lord is promising to gather the nations on his holy mountain which would have understood to have been the place he was standing in that moment. Isaiah 56, 7 is this prophecy of bringing the nations into the temple and the worship of the nations was going to be received and they're going to be filled with joy. No longer just Jews, now Gentiles coming in. That's what Isaiah 56 says. That's the verse he's quoting. 
His house on that day, when Isaiah is prophesying, on that day would be called a house of prayer for all peoples, all nations, not just the Jews. Things, in other words, according to Isaiah's prophecy, are going to change. But instead of it being a house of prayer that is drawing the nations, Jesus finds it to be instead a den of robbers. That's the second verse that he quotes. Jeremiah 7.11. And the context of that verse is fascinating. This helps us understand the consciousness of what Jesus understands to be happening. So when you look at the two verses, the three verses before verse 11 of Jeremiah 7, here's what it says. Behold, this is Jeremiah prophesying of the days of Christ, as it were. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on with these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? In other words, going back to my earlier analogy, the Lord is saying, you think you can prostitute yourself out to other gods and then come back into this temple and think you're safe? And the Lord's going, no, sir. And right after that, verse 11, the very next verse, Jeremiah 7, 12, The Lord promises to destroy the temple. The very same thing Jesus just said in the previous verse. And so when you put Jesus' quotation of Isaiah's promise to bring the nations into the temple for prayer, and you combine it with his next quotation of the destruction of the temple, what we have here, friends, is the beginning of the transition from the old covenant into the new covenant. He's starting to clean it out, make a transition. The king of peace has come down from the Mount of Olives on David's donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And he comes to drive out the false worship of the Israelites and to bring in the true and lasting worship of the nations. And then that next passage there, Jesus daily teaching in the temple. Friends, that is a nod to his pointing the way to the everlasting peace of the world that he will purchase later in the week. He stays in the temple. He cleans out the temple, and then he stays in that temple to teach them the Bible, to point them forward to what is going to happen later that week. To get them ready for it. And all the head haunches of the town are seeking to destroy him. But there was nothing that they could do now because it wasn't the fullness of time. The people, though, are hanging. Don't you love that? Hanging on his word. The old covenant is beginning to be cleaned out. The new and better covenant is coming in. And it's better because the temple is now there in the temple. You follow me? The temple is now in the temple. Jesus, the fullness of God, is there in the temple. The king has come in in the name of the Lord because he is the Lord. God is tabernacling, dwelling with us. And soon enough, just in a few days, he will purchase the peace that mankind has never been able to realize when he offers his life as a ransom for those that would believe upon him. And so as I sort of begin to draw down to these final thoughts, I I want to leave you with one thought. If Christ is your Lord and your King, if you have known the things that make for peace by bowing to the Prince of Peace, trusting His sacrifice for your sin, then, beloved, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I read those words again from Paul. He Himself is our peace. 
And he is leading us, Jesus is leading us to the new Jerusalem, the new city of peace. And therefore, you, beloved, are his temple. Just as he drove out the rebellion of those robbers and stayed and taught daily, so he is driven out and is driving out the rebellion in yours and my hearts, and he's staying in our hearts, and he is teaching us his peace. Hang on his words, beloved, just as they did. As he drives out the robbers of our hearts and cleanses, and he stays, listen, and hang on his words. Worship him. Yes, it's true. There is a long line of principal men in this city, in every city around the world, that is seeking to destroy Christ in you. But they cannot touch you because they cannot touch him. He's defeated sin and death in the cross and the resurrection. Hang on his words. Hang upon your peace, beloved. We have every reason to believe that the next few months are going to be as much a struggle uh, as we have seen in the past few months. But if you remember Christ drove out the den of robbers in your heart and my heart and made you his temple, if you remember his rule from sea to sea, well then listen, you can now listen to him teach you daily about your peace as you hang upon his words. Don't be oriented by all the den of robbers that are seeking to disturb your peace. They will come at you, won't they, from every single angle. And they are often going to come at your identity. But you attack back on your donkey by pointing to the king of peace. That he is my peace. I'm at rest in him. While my rest of my life and sort of seems at chaos, at him I'm at rest. Because he is who I am and I am who he is. And my citizenship is in heaven and nothing and no one can take that away. That's where we're going. And so we have to orient ourselves to him every single day. We've got to hang on his words every day. We've got to go to him in the house of prayer, don't we? To remember him. There's so much chaos around us. We've got to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And soon enough, beloved, the tears will be wiped away and we will see him and be like him in that new and forever city of Jerusalem. And we will experience the fullness of that peace that we're tasting in part today. And may we do this together. We trust Him, look to Him, be oriented to worship Him, follow Him together, reminding ourselves amidst our own dismay where peace is found. And we will not only get through this, beloved, but in the sight of all, we will be better because of it. Because we have been oriented, we've learned to be oriented more to the peace of Christ, our true and lasting temple. And so may we, beloved, now go to the house of prayer. King Jesus, you are our peace. Forgive us for the ways in which we try to find peace in a thousand other places. May we hang on your words. May you drive out the robbers in our heart. May you stay. May we be your temple. And may we be oriented towards our heavenly home, our new Jerusalem. Oh, Jesus, come soon. But until then, Amidst a world of chaos, may we testify to him who rules from sea to sea, who has come in on the donkey, who fights not with war horse, but with humble words. May we be like him. May we be a community like him. And may those that don't know him give their life to him and find peace.
Now take a moment 